You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and get this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church grew from 120 to 3,120 in one day. And what Jesus said in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8, has begun to come true. You'll be my witnesses when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this empowering of the Holy Spirit, pretty, pretty important. Can you imagine having that kind of impact for God's kingdom? As Pastor Danny will highlight in today's message, 3,000 people were baptized into the Holy Spirit because of the work that God did in the heart of Peter. While we see this kind of thing happen occasionally in the modern church, generally we're far more dependent on our own planning and programming to reach the lost. It's not that God doesn't use those things, but He works best when we step aside and let His Spirit work through us. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Acts, chapter 1, with today's edition of The Living Word. The book of Acts is usually referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. I want to be very technical. I thought this through, and I want to suggest that we really should title it the Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles and Disciples, because it's not just the Apostles we'll read about. Verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus is. Let's not spend time on it. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, which we'll read about in just a minute. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. So I ask you to note with me, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up to heaven. So it's the continuing ministry of Jesus. It's the acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and disciples. Verse three, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, another proof text that we will eat in our resurrection bodies, thank you, Lord. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait For the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Many next Sunday morning will follow the Lord in being baptized in water. That is a baptism unto repentance. The idea is you have repented, received Christ as Lord and Savior, you've been born again. 
The old life is gone. The new life is continually being made new. That's what the Greek word means. And that baptism in water, you, you go down in the water, you, you're buried with Christ. Thank God you don't stay in the water. You come up out of the water. You're a new person in Christ. And in the process, you've been forgiven of all your sins. You're washed. You're cleansed. That's a baptism unto repentance. But there's another baptism. And it's the one Jesus speaks about here. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Several times we have recorded Jesus in his first coming saying to his disciples, are you dull? One time he said, are you still so dull? I, I hate to give you the definition of the word, but it's unintelligent without understanding, stupid. And sometimes we just don't get it. And here they don't get it. They, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? They ignored. I want you to wait. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they say, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom? He had told them in Matthew 24, nobody knows the day or the hour. So he said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. But you'll receive power. He gets back to the subject at hand. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and get this one, to the ends of the earth. So this must be pretty important, this receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. When he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. That's where he ascended back up into heaven, Jesus did. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were, and I'm not going to read all the names, it's all the 11 apostles. Judas is gone to his destiny. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, his earthly brothers that Mary and Joseph had after they had Jesus. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And let me tell you what he said. For the sake of time. He talks about Judas. And then he quotes scripture. He says, we got to make a decision now and see who the Lord's going to choose to replace Judas. He quotes a couple of Old Testament places, Psalms, uh, verse 20. May his place be deserted. Let, let there be no one to dwell in it. And then may another take his place of leadership. And they cast lots. One of the ways they tried to determine the will of God. It's kind of like flipping a quarter. But... You know, God spoke through casting lots at times. But it's interesting, they cast lots, and then they prayed. And then they have it down to two guys, Matthias or Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Two guys. And so they cast lots, then they pray, and they say, Lord, which one did you choose? Now, I'm not going to spend time on this. I just want you to know my opinion. My opinion is this is a mistake. Peter's leading in the mistake. He's good at it. He has a history of impetuousness. It's acting without really thinking through, you know. And I think it's a mistake. The lot fell to Matthias. Anybody read anything about Matthias? 
Zippo, Zippo, nada. Now look, again, it's my opinion. I think they jumped the gun. I think they should have just waited for the coming of the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and they probably wouldn't have made this mistake. But that's my opinion. I think God's choice to replace Judas was a guy, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul. The only little doubt I have is Peter says here, we got to choose somebody beginning from the time of John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So my only little doubt is Paul, Saul of Tarsus, wasn't with them from John's baptism, didn't get saved till after that, right? But it seems to be the main focus is one that'll be a witness with us of, with us of his resurrection, Saul of Tarsus was a witness. That's how he came to know the Lord. The resurrected Christ appeared to him as he's on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute more Christians. And he sees the resurrected Christ. I think Paul was the guy. I think it's a mistake. But with that said, chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Not much doubt they're at the temple because they're at the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is the Feast of First Fruits. You would come, you would bring the grain from the first fruits, you would offer it to the Lord as an offering, and by doing so, you were by faith saying, Lord, we give you the first fruits, and we trust you, you'll bring in an abundant harvest. And so when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together, no doubt at the temple, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul the apostle writes, and he says, we've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. I have no doubt it's for that reason God sends the empowering of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the feast of first fruits. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So it's not just the miracle of the gift of tongues. There was a miracle in the hearing of the people. Explain it, I can't. Believe it, I do. A lot of things God does I can't explain. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Well, in response to that, Peter, again, gets up. And he says, nah, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's been drinking. Then he begins to quote Old Testament prophetic scripture from Joel about the end of the world as we know it. And then he begins to quote from Psalm 16, verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay in the grave. He quotes that, and then he says, brothers, David, we know died and was buried, and his tomb is right here in Jerusalem. We know where his tomb is. And he takes from that scripture and begins to speak about the one prophesied in the psalm, and it's not David, it's the Messiah, it's the Christ, who the Father did not let his body, the Messiah's body, decay in the grave, but three days after he was buried in that tomb, he rose again. And he, from this scripture now, declares, this Jesus whom you had crucified is Lord and Christ. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're convicted. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, don't miss this last part, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be empowered, just like we've been empowered. Promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, doesn't matter how far from God you are. For all whom the Lord our God will call, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and get this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church grew from 120 to 3,120 in one day. And what Jesus said in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8, has begun to come true. You'll be my witnesses when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this empowering of the Holy Spirit, pretty, pretty important, pretty important. But let me start off and deal with the most controversial of subjects here, and that is the gift of tongues. I was taught early on in my Christian life that the gift of tongues is not available today, and the basis of that teaching was from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It goes like this, verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And I was taught that completeness is the completion of the canon of Scripture. That's what I was taught. But if you read on, I came to the place, I just went, that's not what the text says. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. None of us are know fully right now. We see in that glass, uh, like one translation says, darkly. We're going to see face to face when Jesus comes. No more questions. That's what this text teaches It's not the completion of the canon of Scripture. It's when Jesus returns. So I believe, and I know of no other text to suggest otherwise, that every supernatural gift that God has listed in the New Testament, including the list in 1 Corinthians, one of those gifts being the gift of tongues. 
I believe they're all available. And I began to believe that before ever experiencing anything of any of the gifts. Some people believe the gift of tongues and the language that is spoken is the language of angels because 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, in the context, he's trying to get some order and understanding with the Corinthians about the gift of tongues because they were out of order and exalting the gift of tongues unnecessarily and un- unbiblically. 1 Corinthians 14, 2 um, says that he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. That's why at Calvary Chapel, if tongues are ever spoken in a public meeting, there must be interpretation. First Corinthians says that, or otherwise, how do you understand what somebody's saying? Got to be an interpretation. That's another individual gift that somebody might have in, in that meeting. Or God might give the interpretation to the tongue speaker. But we believe the interpretation would be something directed Godward, not manward. Prophecy, Paul says, prophecy is God speaking through man to men. Tongues is God speaking through man, but it's directed heavenward. He does not speak to men, 1 Corinthians says, but to God. He utters mysteries with his spirit. It also says the person who exercises the gift of tongues edifies himself, and that's a positive thing. That's a good thing. Paul limits... Anytime there is to be tongues in a public meeting, must be interpretation, and two at the most, three, would speak, one at a time, and every time there must be an interpretation. And Paul doesn't encourage the public use of tongues. He says, don't forbid tongues. Don't forbid it. Don't forbid it. But he says, I'd rather rather speak five words in a language you can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue in a public setting. And then last but not least, 1 Corinthians says that tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul quotes Isaiah and a prophecy in Isaiah where because of Israel's sin and rebellion, God sends judgment and he uses for the judgment against Israel a foreign-speaking people. He sends a foreign-speaking army against them. In that same sense, the tongues at Pentecost was a sign to these unbelieving Jews who as a nation had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And that was sin. And that was rebellion. And the sign that they were wrong was this gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. Now, I got a few questions. Very little PowerPoint today. You got to do the old-fashioned listen Should every Christian have the gift of tongues? 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30, Paul asked the question, are all teachers, are all apostles, are all prophets? Then he says, do all speak in tongues? Now the answer to the first question has to be the answer to the next one. Uh, All are not prophets, all are not teachers, okay? And so I have to say, well, then God may not have all Christians to have the gift of tongues. My wife has the gift. I don't understand it. She grew up Plymouth Brethren. I grew up Baptist. I was more open to the gifts of the Spirit before she was. I wanted the gift of tongues. I'm still open to it. God hasn't given it to me. I've been prayed for and prayed over by some of the best. I've been prayed over by the ones that are speaking in tongues as they're praying for me, and then they say, just go ahead and just go ahead and give praise and go ahead and begin to speak. And the motor just never turned on. Okay? It is what it is. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. 
My wife has the gift, I don't. I'm okay with that. The more important question is, have I been empowered, baptized by the Holy Spirit? That's the more important question. Some would say the sign of the baptism, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues. I don't believe that's the only sign. I think that's unscriptural. It can be a sign of an empowering of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the only sign. Let me share with you the three ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives, okay? Just briefly. The first, Jesus said in John 14 and 17, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he is with you. He is with you. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that's one of the words. It means one who comes alongside. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us to lead us to Christ. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, we could never be saved. The Holy Spirit draws us, convicts us, with us to lead us to Christ. Then, same verse, he says, and he shall be, he will be in you. In you. In John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. That had to be more than just words. And at that point, the ministry of the Holy Spirit changed for the believer. Now Ephesians tells us that when you believe the gospel, the word of truth, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You were baptized into the body of Christ, and now the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's with you. He will be in you. But Jesus here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, said, I want you to wait. Don't leave Jerusalem. I think that was hard to hear because they'd already been given the Great Commission, going to all the world, preach the gospel. They knew the gospel. They had been with Jesus for three years. They had been on two very successful short-term mission trips. They saw demons cast out. They saw miracles happen. And yet he says, oh, wait a minute now, wait. I know you got all this. I know you've had these experiences. You need to wait. You need to wait. And in God's time, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is baptized in water, identifying himself with death, burial, resurrection. After he's baptized in water, he comes up out of the water, and you know what happened? The Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes down and comes upon him. Now, you're going to tell me Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before that? Come on. But that's the beginning of his public ministry, where he ministers by the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way God wants to lead and minister through us. The same Holy Spirit that empowered and came upon Jesus wants to come upon you and me as disciples of Jesus Christ. I just think that's incredible. With you, in you, upon you. Examples of Christians who have received an empowering of the Holy Spirit Distinct from their salvation experience, there are a whole bunch of them. Oswald Chambers, D.L. Moody. That might surprise some people. Read his book, Secret Power, he'll tell you. R.A. Torrey, Charles Spurgeon, Danny Hodges, Wendy Hodges, and a lot of you that I know. Another important question. Am I continuing to be filled with the Holy Spirit? See, I was taught, too, that once I received Christ, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and there's no other work, baptism with the Holy Spirit, and, and I find that that's not true. That's not scriptural. But this filling of the Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Once I'm filled once, do I need to be filled again? The answer is yes. You say, why? 
I love what one person said years ago in answer to that question. If I've been filled once with the Holy Spirit, why do I need to be filled again? And the answer he gave was this, because we leak. We're so thankful to be able to share this time with you today on The Living Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. We've been learning some historical things from the Book of Acts, a New Testament book that records the early church and how the disciples spread the gospel of Jesus to the world. What an incredible move of the Holy Spirit that we get to not only read about, but experience today. If you'd like to hear today's message again, or other messages like it from Pastor Danny, visit our website at ccfstpete.church. Look under the Media tab and click on Sermons. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment and ask you to partner with us in prayer here at The Living Word. Prayer is an incredibly powerful tool that you can use against the enemy, who doesn't play fair. Being in conversation with the Lord is an exercise that's extremely rewarding as you find yourself more and more in a relationship with God. As far as a specific prayer request, please pray that we'd always have it on the forefront of our minds to be teaching the Word and reaching the world. As you pray about this, we pray too that your heart is encouraged and growing in the Word through these teachings. Thanks for praying, and thanks for being a part of this ministry. Join us again next time to dive deeper into the Book of Acts right here on The Living Word.